This morning, I'm excited to uh, introduce our storyteller to you. She has a, an amazing story. She's got a lot of stories, but she picked one for this week. And uh, Hoy, come on up. Hoy, too, has been a part of our church for many years, as you will hear in her story. But I first met her about, uh, I'm going to say about 20 years ago. She was working in our church nursery, being that one uh, staff person who the kids knew every week they would see, thank goodness. And so even as they were coming in, if they saw Hoy's face, it was like, okay, I can go. Bye, Mom and Dad. It was great. Um, Hoy has two amazing daughters. She has Alexis, who is here, and Alyssa, who is back. She is uh, at Wazoo going to college. And they are amazing girls. Hoy has been a great mom. Uh, so if you have boys who are teenagers and you want to do the arranged marriage kind of thing, you've got two possibilities here. Um, anyway, I am excited for Hoy to tell her story. She, um, she's very special. She's been very special to our church and um, very special to me. Thank you. So Thank you, Julie. <laughs> tell your story. All right. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. My name is Hoi To, and most of you must have known me from watching either your babies or your grandbabies um, in the nursery since 1990. <laughs> Today, I would like to share with you my story of coming to America and finding a home. I was born in Cambodia and grew up with my extended family. Because Cambodia is a third world country, my father, had to seek work in Thailand. In 1973, my mother went to visit my father in Thailand for just one month while my maternal family took care of me. But before she was able to return to Cambodia, the Pol Pot regime invaded Phnom Penh. All communications were blocked and all families were evacuated to concentration camps. No one could come in and no one could leave. The Pol Pot soldiers told us, all the people, that we would return back to our home soon. So we weren't allowed to take any of our belongings or any of our goods. This would only be temporary, is what they said. However, my, grave, my brave grandmother hid gold around her body to later to keep it for an exchange for food to keep us alive. Without her quick thinking and braveness, we would not have survived this day without that extra gold that she was so brave. There were 10 of us, my grandparents, three uncles, and four aunts, and myself. We were expected to follow all of Popot's soldiers' order. Anyone in the age of 10 or under or over had to go work in the rice field. They were all separated when they did that. Food and water were very scarce, and we were all in different places. There were times my aunts and uncle did their best to sneak home to bring back stolen food for us. At times, they were caught and brought back to the rice camps. 
However, with the constant monitoring from the soldiers, they were sent back. We knew of many of our friends and families and relatives who tried to escape and were captured and killed immediately. During this time, my grandfather and my youngest uncle died of starvation while they were working in the rice field. After their passings, my aunt felt that we needed to be together. So we secretly packed the little belongings we had and quietly escaped Thailand in hopes to find my parents and away from the genocides. During the day, we hid in an evacuated building. And during the night, we would walk for countless hours. Soldiers were on watch, grenade mines were hidden, and bombs were exploding. We tirelessly walked until our legs nearly gave up. Though I was fortunate that my uncle carried me throughout the distressful escape. After many tireless nights and days, we finally arrived at the border of Thailand. Unfortunately, we did not locate my parents. Instead, we found a Thai immigrant camp. There, we somehow continued to survive in the meager resources and managed to stay in Thailand, waiting for a sponsorship to America, the land of opportunity. After three years of waiting, my eldest aunt connected with the Thai general and was able to get a sponsorship to the United States in 1979. Upon leaving Thailand, a mutual friend of my mother and my eldest aunt told us that my parents had immigrated from Thailand to Hong Kong. As soon as we got to America, we were able to contact my parents by mail. Yes, snail, snail mail. We found out that while in Hong Kong, my parents had my sister, Pui. We were ecstatic to be in the land of opportunity in Florida. We knew that the Vietnam War and the Khmer Rouge regime was behind us, but we had to work hard for the opportunity that was available to us in America. We stayed in the isolated home in the countryside where four of my oldest aunts and uncle worked in the middle of the cucumber field at minimum wage to support the eight of us. I was six years old then and have not started school. We struggled to keep up with the expenses, but we soon saved enough to move to Washington in 1980. That's my youngest aunt, myself. After moving to Seattle, my grandmother had many strokes and was soon paralyzed. We knew that she was no longer able to care for me and my youngest aunt. So we took the opportunity to sponsor my parents and sister to reunite us in Washington in 1984. After my parents and sister came to Seattle, my brother Stephen was born. My grandmother continued to be very sick and disabled, 
And then in 1995, she went to heaven with my grandfather. Washington is home to me now. In 1991, I received my Bachelor of Business at the University of Washington. I have two daughters. My eldest daughter, Alyssa, will graduate from Wazoo this spring and then will be attending the University of Washington School of Pharmacy in the fall. And my youngest daughter, Alexis, is a junior at Newport High School and is attending Reading Start at Bellevue College. Her goal is to be an optometrist. I am grateful to call Evergreen Church as my home and the friends that I have here. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of John. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. I will be reading verses 24 to 31 from John chapter 20 in the New American Standard Bible. But Thomas, one of the 12 called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger, and see my hands, and reach here your hand, and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of this disciple, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. And I have four daughters. And I like to do the arranged marriage thing too. So <laughs> get a ministry going here. Um, tomorrow morning, uh, I'll be going to an MLK breakfast. And I really appreciate uh, the work of Dr. King. And my mom has raised me to understand that African-Americans have really been the uh, spear point of this movement. And she said, where do you think you would be, Peter, if it wasn't for black people in this country? And I will never forget that. And uh, I have a tradition of listening to an MLK sermon every MLK. And uh, about two years ago, I discovered that, you know the famous I Have a Dream speech? Well, it wasn't always famous, and he'd given it many, many times. And I really relate to that as a fellow preacher. Even today's my second time saying these words. And uh, it was terrible. Like in some of the other versions, he would, he would be like, I think I have a dream. Or, do you have a dream? And none of it worked. He'd try out different versions of this word dream. And then finally, in Washington, when he was marching, he had it right. So it takes a few times to get it right. 
And it's just kind of fun and fascinating for me to learn that, that a famous speech like that was practiced, tried out in Philadelphia and other places before it made it to uh, Washington. Another comment about my uh, commissioning here to uh, partner with the conference, one of the things that dawned on me this past week as I was praying about this is um, Dr. Robert Clinton, one of the leadership gurus that I really appreciate, he talks about these seasons in life, and he says that all of us, uh, we have about 12 to 15 years, uh, somewhere, usually between, somewhere between the late 30s and early 40s, mid 40s, uh, after that, when we really begin to outgive what we get. So all of the time leading up to that season is really you learning and growing at other people's expense. And then you have the, these short years in which you really are productive and fruitful and uh, your punches land and you're able to really be uh, co a contributor in that way. And then uh, you get, slip into an afterglow season when you are more focused on passing the baton and uh, he calls it an afterglow season. And so I'm really excited that I get to step into that season in this way. And I have the luxury with the staff at the church and with the staff at the conference office to really use my time and energy uh, to give my best and my strongest things rather than struggling with a weakness or something. And not everybody gets to have that luxury. So that's not lost on me. And I appreciate all of you in the conference office for letting me serve in such an uh, optimal way. So please continue to be in prayer for me as um, I engage in this next season with you all. Today, uh, we are second to last with the book of John in a series we've been calling The Son of God. And next week, we're going to end with what all of this believing in Christ as the Son of God means for us personally. It's the famous passage where uh, Jesus confronts Peter about his denial and then tells him the life that he's calling him to live, which uh, is very different than the way he's lived up to that point. And so we're going to apply that to our own lives next week. And really, it's a life of faith we're going to be talking about. Before we get to faith today, I want to set that up by talking about faith's opposite, which we're going to say is doubt. And the main thrust of the message is that doubters are welcomed first by God and then by the church. Two points. One, how to doubt, because not all doubting is the same. And how to believe, because not all believing is the same. We begin with verse 25 in How to Doubt. Thomas says, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I started my ministry really, I think if I think about it, in high school. I was really passionate about spiritual things from an early age. As a middle schooler, on my own, without anybody paying me or bribing me or forcing me, I read through the Bible many times. Any other middle schoolers that you know have done this? It's a really peculiar thing I've come to discover. But I did that because I was really spiritually hungry. I wanted to know how the world worked. 
And in the midst of that searching, I really began to uh, paint a picture of what the church should look like. I began to feel disgruntled about the Presbyterian Korean immigrant church that I belonged to with my family. And when I was a sophomore in high school, I left that church and I went to an multi-denominational church on my own in the inner city of New York City because I began to believe that the ideal picture of the church is diverse. Uh, I believe that there shouldn't be dividing walls and that really, especially in the church, we should reflect this kingdom ideal. I brought that idealism with me to college and I met there um, on the campus of University of Michigan a preacher named, we called affectionately Preacher Mike. And he would stand up in the Diag, which was a center of campus that everybody walked through uh, when they were changing classes. And he'd just stand up on a stone bench and start preaching in a provocative, relatable, interesting, funny way. And just a crowd would gather around him all the time. He was a known entity. He was part of the orientation. If you went to the University of Michigan and as a freshman, uh, he'd be part of the tour. And uh, so that was really fun, but I really connected with him. And I remember praying. I said, God, if I can explain the gospel as clearly and as effectively as Mike can, I'd like to give up this nonsense about becoming a doctor, and I'll, I'll be a preacher for you. I remember praying that. Uh, and uh, that bled into my uh, ministry. I didn't go to medical school. I went to seminary. And I started starting churches right away because I wanted to start multi-ethnic churches that were friendly to folks like me who are hungry but skeptical and doubting and inquiring. Uh, and I didn't feel that churches had space for people like me. Everybody had to already believe and be certain. And I certainly wasn't certain if I was anything. And so I started these churches, but in the midst of starting these churches, I was living my life from my extremities rather than my core. I began to overuse my gifts and not enough of my character, uh, and I burnt out. And prior to having this burnout experience, I thought burnout was sort of a trite word, sort of an excuse that people gave when they were tired or didn't want to work as hard or something. But I discovered that burnout was real. It was deep and it was powerful, pervasive. And it took me, looking back now, I see this, it took me about six years to recover from burnout. What happened during my burnout is, at first, I found it increasingly difficult to believe that God was good. And then I began to increasingly doubt uh, his existence at all. And I began to just run out of love with which to engage my family, my kids, my church. Uh, and I had sort of nothing left. I was running on fumes. Going all the way back to high school, a high school friend of mine visited me, at, uh, visited me, his crazy friend from high school who started this church in New York. And as soon as he sat in on the service and heard me preach, all sorts of alarm bells went off in his head. He looked up the church, found that we were part of a denomination, called the superintendent of the denomination. And the um, superintendent called me up the next day, Monday, got me on the phone and started inquiring about how I was doing and told me that a friend of mine had visited and he was worried. And that week, uh, they pulled me out of the pulpit 
and uh, they sent me on an emergency four-week vacation. And I was so used to churning, I was so restless and unable to be present that I couldn't vacation at all. I had maybe about five days of vacation in those four weeks. I came back, preached four more times, and then they sent me off on an emergency six-week sabbatical. I spent four of those weeks at a monastery meeting with a spiritual director, a Benedictine monk, uh, talking with him every day about what was really going on on the inside. And then the last two weeks, Susie and I went to Hawaii where we celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary. And there I was also not present and just struggling uh, with life. I was riddled with doubt. I've always been... I've always been a skeptic. If there's a tire, I'm going to kick it. If there's no tire, I'll put one on and then so I can kick it. <laughs> that's the kind of guy I am. You know, if you see a glass that's half uh, full, and I wouldn't even think it was half empty. I would just say, why does it have to be a glass? You know, why? just always challenging whatever was. That was my MO. Uh, I learned uh, during those years of, being a doubter. And by the way, I should add, I, I mentioned in the first service that for two years, the last two years at the church in New York that I was at, I was an a outright atheist, closeted one. Uh, but I, to myself, I was just out as an atheist. I was preaching every week as an atheist. How interesting were those sermons? Um, I learned uh, in my uh, doubting atheist years and now in my recovery years, I learned, I've learned that the church has a lot of baggage, that there is a lot of culture that people are tripping on, that they don't even ever get to Christ. You know, they're just rejecting Christians. And I'm good with people stumbling on Christ, but 99% of the time, they're not stumbling on Christ. They're stumbling on Christians and culture and human nature itself. And there is actually a lot of valid cynicism, a lot of valid doubts to be had. And so if you're sitting here today and you're not a Christian, you've got a lot of questions, I get it. I'm with you. No judgment here whatsoever. I've learned that pitfalls and land, the landmines of being a church are ever-present. And it's really tricky business to gather together under a set of beliefs. It's really hard to be at the same place, all of us at the same time. We may not look like it because we're here inside the confines of a church building, but all of us are very different and are at different places. Many of us here uh, don't wear the label Christian. Many of us do but shouldn't. There's a whole variety of people here in this room right this moment is what I have learned. Uh, the end goal of faith is really to find a sustainable way of being a follower of Christ. Somebody who is able to integrate all the facets and the elements and the disciplines of thought and life into a coherent faith system for themselves that allows them to bear the weight of life, especially when life gets hard. You know, and the final test for me is a Christian who is able to be faithful to Christ and competently engage culture at the same time. Lots of Christians are good at the faithful to Christ part, but they get really wonky when it comes to engaging culture competently. Or they're so consumed by con uh, Engaging culture, they don't know how to stay faithful to Christ. And really the mission is to do both of those well. Jesus said it, be in the world, but not of it. Meaning don't be defined by the world, but know how to engage and uh, seek the welfare of the city to which you belong. So 
All that to say, it's really, really important and crucial to know how to doubt well. And it's integral to the process of coming to places of faith. So if you're here and you have doubts and you have uh, just uncertainty, I want to tell you that's really normal. And actually, it's necessary. Unless you go through the doubting process, you're not going to end well. Uh, Francis Bacon, uh, born in nine, uh, 1560. Can you imagine a world existed in 1560? He was born that year, and he's the father of empiricism. He's the guy who established the scientific method that we still subscribe to today. If you are any kind of researcher or thinker, and you have a way of uh, understanding information, uh, reading statistics, and knowing what, how to know what you know, where did that come from? It came from Francis Bacon. And he says this, If a man will begin with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. Ponder this statement for a second. Is this true for you? Do you see how this is true? So, for example, in relationships, it is really, really better if you start relationships slowly and with doubt. Because when you have doubts, it causes you to be in a place of asking questions. Your critical mind is engaged. Your mind remains open to evidence and facts rather than assumptions and your own idealized reality. And so if on date one, you say, oh my gosh, you are the greatest human being I have ever met. I love you. I want to be with you for the rest of my life. First of all, that person should run because <laughs> that's scary. Second of all, your mind shuts down. You're not thinking anymore. And so that relationship has nowhere to go but down. But if you start slow, if you remain open-handed about the person that you're with, and you begin to be in a, uh, you, uh, maintain a learning posture about this person, then you're asking questions, you're gathering information, you're letting reality be reality, you're letting facts present themselves, you're following the evidence, right? And so you know how they are at work, you know how they are when they're driving, you know how they treat their family members, you hear how they talk to their bosses and their uh, subordinates. You just begin to learn about this person in different contexts, different stressors. And then you say, oh, I think I can choose this person. I think I can. You, you begin to actually get where you need to go, but the only reason is because you started with doubts rather than certainties. So doubting is really necessary, and it's helpful. It's an integral part of the uh, learning and bonding process. But just doubting for the sake of doubting isn't helpful either. You can't just always be a doubter. At some point, you have to use doubt to believe something. Uh, so the imperative there is to be a doubter who doubts their doubts. Notice what Thomas says. He says, I 
will not believe. He doesn't say, I can't help it but to not believe. No, he's acknowledging his own choice in the matter. He says, I will not believe. Did you know that doubting is a matter of will also? That you have a part to play in it. You're not just a victim. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 8 says, do not harden your hearts. You have the ability to choose what you believe or not believe. You can harden your hearts if you want to. And that's because our hearts are very complicated things. It's easily self-deceived and deceiving of others. It's filled with agendas. And sometimes it's convenient and easier for us to doubt and not believe. For example, maybe we're choosing to doubt because we want to abdicate responsibility. You know, we want you to carry it. We want to have the luxury to say, I never believed anyways. I was never really invested. I didn't choose it. And so with that in mind, we choose to doubt. Uh, C.S. Lewis spoke to this in such a beautiful way in The Abolition of Man. And some of you have read this before. This is worth uh, being reminded of. He says this. The kind of explanation which explains things away may give us something, though at a heavy cost. So doubting gives us something, right? But you can't go on explaining away forever. You will find that you have explained explanation itself away. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible one. To see through all things is the same as not to see at all. Jesus said to Thomas, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. So here Jesus meets Thomas exactly where Thomas is at. He doesn't condemn Thomas's doubting. In fact, you know, we have at least two recorded times of Jesus appearing to his followers prior to this moment, right? He first appeared uh, on the third day at the uh, tomb site to the women. And then the women run back and tell the guys about it. And the guys don't believe them. And so Jesus shows up and shows himself to all the guys, except Thomas wasn't there. And so they're all talking about Jesus. And Thomas won't believe. He says, I will not believe until I really feel everything. I want to see it with my eyes and touch it with my hands. I want to make sure that it's actually Jesus you guys saw. And the way I'll know it is if I can touch his wounds. And Jesus says, fair enough. Jesus does not condemn doubting, but he meets Thomas where he's at and, in fact, provides the evidence that Thomas needs. This is a bit of a side note, but notice the thing that Thomas needs to see are the wounds, the scars of Christ. I think this is one of the uh, basis of many of our uh, doubts. It's really doubts about the goodness of God, about how to reconcile a good God in a world, with a world that's so uh, pervaded with evil and suffering and pain and injustice and atrocity and misfortune. How do we reconcile those two things together? And Thomas is having that kind of doubt. Right? And so Jesus meets him with his wounds. And he's basically telling Thomas, be the kind of doubter 
that's not just doubting for doubting's sake, but learn to use doubts by following the evidence. Thomas, it's good. You're asking for evidence. I'm going to give it to you. Look, you know, the, you know the nails that went into my hands? Well, they left holes. I want you to feel it. You know the spear that pierced my side and blood and water flowed out? I want you to put your hand in that hole. It's still there. That's the evidence. Follow it. Recognize truth when you see it. The way you know that your doubts are sincere is that when truth and evidence present themselves, you're able to actually believe the evidence. You're somebody that knows how to follow the evidence. Both Thomas and Jesus do this work to get at the underlying concerns that Thomas had. And Jesus accepts him as he is, meets him where he's at, but doesn't leave him there. He takes him by the hand and leads him to a place of believing. Faith is often riddled with hidden motives. And Jesus says, I want you to have genuine faith, real faith, one that's based on the evidence. I've adopted this into my preaching style as well. The reason, you know, some of you have asked, why are you always quoting extra biblical literature and scientific studies and different disciplines of thought? I'm not doing it for you. I'm doing it for me. And I think that's Jesus' way too. It's not just let me tell you what's true. It's let me show you what's true. Jesus showed him the evidence. And so I'm trying to illustrate the evidence. I want to present the thinking, present the bodies of research, and I want you to come to the conclusion that you believe. And I want you to understand why you believe so that when life throws its worst at you, you're not going to crumble under the weight of reality, but you're going to be able to stand up under it because your faith has actually been tested and it's resting on evidence, things that make sense. I want you to have an integrating faith. I want the whole of the world to make sense to you and for your Christian faith to be coherent within a larger model. <clears throat> so we have the result of faith. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, you, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Look at what Jesus did. He created in Thomas real, genuine, life-altering faith that only he could have done. This little phrase, my Lord and my God. I don't know if some of you didn't know this, but it is the single highest declared Christology in the whole Bible. And it didn't come from somebody who always believed in Jesus, but as somebody who believed enough to follow, and then he was disoriented and disillusioned and hurt and disappointed. And then Jesus finds him, and Jesus is the author of Thomas's faith. Jesus is the author in that he started in the beginning, and Jesus is the perfecter because he's the one who, who finished it in Thomas. It's God's gift to us to believe. That's why we can't condemn others for not believing because the faith we have, if you have it, is a gift of God. It's a result of God working in your life just the way he worked in Thomas's life. It's nothing that you can boast about. It's his joy to gift us with real faith. Ephesians 2 says this, For by grace you are saved through faith, and this, 
talking about faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. If you believe anything at all, it's because God has worked in you. And it is okay to be in process. It is okay to be in a place of questioning and asking and wondering how things fit together, wondering what's true and what's not, what's made up and what's real. It's all great, but also learn to doubt your doubts so that you can get to a place of evidence-based faith. Now, speaking of faith, uh, let me unpack this idea a little bit because we're not just believing anything. Hebrews 11 is the famous chapter on faith, and it lists lots of people in the Bible who had faith. And this is one example um, the author writes about Moses. He says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. There is a kind of uh, way that Moses was able to view the reality of the world that allowed him to defy what others believed was reality. Moses said, that's not as real as this other thing. I see this other thing. I'm going to let this other thing dictate or define what I do, the choices I make, where I go. Moses had these eyes with which he saw the world. Right? And I want to submit to you that it's not just Moses, but we all live by faith. Whether you are religious or not, the only way we can live is by faith. We see the world a certain way, and by that sight, we live and move and have our being. And the Christian faith says, actually, I want to tweak how you see the world. That's not actually as real as what the Bible says, how the world really works. See the world that way, and you'll see something different. So, for example... I think the secular word for faith is maybe awareness or consciousness. You know, it's what you're aware of that determines how you see reality. I want to give you an example. Uh, one philosopher says this. Uh, he says 100% of our experiences are created internally. 100%. What does that mean? Does that seem true to you? So, for example, I have a daughter uh, and she loves rain. She wants it to rain every day. And she's disappointed when the sun comes out because she likes rain so much. Now, the rest of us sane people don't love the rain as much. And around this time, we feel this itch to have to get out of Seattle. Right? We, we drive east to go somewhere or fly to Phoenix or Hawaii or something because we don't like the rain. But that experience, that judgment we put on the rain, that's created not by the rain, but it's by us. It's our own internal experience of the rain that defines what rain is. So rain itself is not the objective dictator of our experience. We decide what we experience. You know, it's our response to it, our attitude to it. 
there's this um, really powerful book that I read uh, this week that I would love for you to read uh, as well. It's a book called How Emotions Are Made. And it's a research book on the science of the brain and emotions. I just finished reading it last night. And the basic thrust of the book is this, that our emotions aren't things that happen to us, but it's actually constructed inside of our brain. So she says, so you know how sometimes these things are happening outside of you and you feel stressed? And we often think of stress as something that's happening to us. Why are you stressed? Well, it's the traffic, it's my deadlines, it's my relationships, it's my health crises. Nope, it's none of those things, she says. It's actually constructed inside of you. So you can actually train yourself to not have that stress response. She says things like anxiety. That's not something that's happening to you. You construct that. It's a constructed experience. You know, she says even things as far-reaching as Autism, she says, not all autism is just happening, but some of it you can get trained. And she explains the science of how your will and your own construct, the construct of your brain comes into play with even things like autism. She talks about depression as a huge example of it's not just something that's happening to you, but you can actually, you're constructing deep depression inside of you. It's fascinating stuff, but it speaks to this idea that what we think we see, how we see defines more than what we actually see. Final example as we close. Uh, I read a little bit uh, by this woman named Janine Roth. She is probably the world's premier expert on the human being's relationship to food and eating issues. So you can Google her, Janine Roth. But she says this, that all of us have a relationship to food. And for most of us, it's not very healthy that we are using food in the wrong ways, that we have these triggers that we have constructed for ourselves. And she says, if you were to boil it down, 99.9% of the relationship with food is defined by our views on self-worth. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're young or you're old, you can be a teenage girl or a 70-year-old man, your relationship to food is defined by your sense of self-worth. That determines how you see and use food. It's by faith we eat. It's by faith we have emotions. It's by faith we have the life we have. So it's really crucial what we believe. Because we all believe something. Tim Keller said that faith is like rock climbing. You have to put your foot on something. You need a finger hold or toe hold. What are you hanging on to? What are you resting on? That defines reality. And the Bible says, actually, the reality is nobody is worthy on their own. We are all made worthy by the death of Christ. It's God himself dying for us, proving his love for us, proving his commitment to us. And that's the deep baseline hunger that defines everything in our life. And if you will believe that God loves you to the bottom just as you are, and that he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, and he has a purpose for you. He has a love for you with which you can use to love the world. 
You don't have to worry about what you deserve or what you've earned or who you are. God is taking care of that. If you believe that, those become the eyes with which you see everything else. And that becomes to define your life. And so in conclusion, I want to read to us 2 Corinthians 4. It says this. For God who said that light shine out of darkness is the one who shined in our hearts to give us the light of the glorious knowledge of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in clay jars. That's us with our faith and our doubts. So that the extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. Now let me read to you a redacted version of the rest of the passage. We are experiencing trouble on every side, but by faith we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but by faith we are not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but by faith we are not abandoned. We are knocked down, but by faith, we are not destroyed. Always carrying around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be made visible in our body by faith. What do you believe? How do you see the world? This will determine your year and your life for you, I want you to know that doubters are welcome as far as God is concerned, as far as our church is concerned. Come with your questions. Come with your experiences. And find this to be a healing place that gives you genuine faith. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for your disposition towards us. One of love, of generosity, of uh, security. You're not threatened by our doubts. You're not made insecure by our insecurity. But you come alongside us, meet us exactly where we're at. You take us by the hand. You customize the process for us. And you lead us to places of better faith, of believing the truth, of knowing what's real. So God, we thank you for being a God like that. I pray that we may open up our hearts to you and our minds to you and trust that you will take us exactly where we need to go just as we need to get there. We entrust ourselves to you and we look to you together in Jesus' name. Amen.